Hello and welcome to Becoming the Influential Me. I'm Michelle Chikando and today I am so, so, so excited um, to share this podcast with somebody else. You're going to be hearing today from Neelima Baxter-Jones, somebody who has inspired me, um, but will also definitely inspire you. Why? This woman has been a barrister, a prosecutor. She's had success in, you know, magic circle, law firms. After that, she went on to become a COO. After that, she was a CEO. Um, And now she's the general counsel of Kantar Media. It's so hard to say that in one breath. (laughs) She's done so much. And also, did I mention that she has children, a family, and also she has charity endeavors that you will find out, or you you will find out all about in this podcast episode. She's a force of nature, but what I love about this podcast episode is she's also a force for good. She will be sharing with you some of the practical things that she's been able to push for in her career, and I cannot wait to hear the stories that will come from this in terms of how you can or you have transformed your own career by hearing what she has to say. There is room for success for everybody, no matter where you come from. Um, It's just your willingness to go for what you want uh, and to not compromise on who you are. Neelima has bags more uh, uh, advice and tips in this podcast and I'm going to just leave it there. Let me know what you think about this podcast episode and until then... Neelima, thank you so much for joining me. I am super thrilled about this interview. I remember when we last spoke I had goosebumps after our conversation so I'm Super, super excited about our chat and what you have to share with other women, just like you and me. So I'm going to dive right in because we want to make the most of your precious time. Um, everybody assumes that anybody who has any measure of success in their life had was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Um, how did how did you start out? Did you have a silver spoon in your in your mouth? Uh, Tell us more. Far from it. But first and foremost, thank you so much. And it's lovely to be invited by you and and to catch up with you again. I really enjoyed our previous conversation and I'm delighted to be here. It's a huge honour and privilege. Um, In in terms of um, my background, I come from a very working class background. My parents were both working class. Their families were both working class. So we come from a very humble background. And in fact, um, I entered the law as a profession, but none none of my family members were were, uh, lawyers or had any connection to the law. So uh, absolutely not. Um, (laughs) No no silver spoon, probably a lot of dirt because I used to play around in the dirt a lot as a young child. Yeah, tell Uh, us more about that because you are obviously like the only, you were born the only girl and So I was born in Africa and uh, you and I share that, which I which I love. Um, So I was born in in Zimbabwe and grew up with three older brothers um, with a family who had originally come from India and had emigrated to Africa. And they built their lives there. And I I grew up in a community that very much valued um, particular issues, you know, particular traits. And that that core to my upbringing was um, a focus on education, a focus on uh, improving self and, and also respecting 
elders and respecting and growing and nurturing our understanding of um, Hinduism and what it meant to be an Indian uh, in, in a foreign country too. But at the time, you know, one of the greatest gifts that I had was were parents who encouraged us to really learn and to really focus on learning. And that meant not just um, education and what we learned at school, but also what it meant to give back to the community, what community meant. Um, and one of the things that I'm, I remember distinctly is growing up with my, my mother telling us stories of Gandhi. And when she met him um, as a young girl, she was part of his youth league. And she was profoundly impacted by his teachings and therefore passed those teachings on to us as children. And so we very much grew to admire what Gandhi had achieved. But also, as I was growing up, I had other heroes um, around me, such as Nelson Mandela in South Africa and, you know, others in uh, the civil rights movement in America, whom I admired. Um, and I think those things profoundly influenced my upbringing and, and as I was growing up in Africa. Yeah, you shared with me this, and it's, it's still with me now, this idea of the truth that your mother instilled in you. Mm. Uh, can you share with us um, a little bit more about that? Yeah, and she, you know, she, she passed away in 2016 and, and in, re, you know, reflecting, in, in grieving her loss, she taught me so much more about leadership. And um, one of the things I, I reflected upon was actually how many of the things that she did, she did as a first. You know, she was a child growing up in India and was one of the first women to go to college in her, in her family, in her immediate family. She brought her own family out of poverty through the work that she was doing. But in her heart, she believed that um, to lead a worthy life was one that she had to give back to community and that was very much part of her life and she did everything that she could to do that and that's what she instilled in us but one of the things that I think was also very prevalent with my father was that he was an entrepreneur and um yeah. and profoundly influenced by all those around him but also about things that were happening in the continent of Africa um in certainly in Uganda in particular Mm -hmm. And um, with, with a number of uh, Asian families being expelled from Uganda, in the psyche of many Indian families was this issue that that could be a risk to us if we lived in a foreign country, wherever we were, we had to do two things. One is educate ourselves so that we would be able to, um, wherever we landed, find a profession, find a craft, be able to live. And for them, education was the passport to the world. And so I think they were motivated by that. They were motivated also by their own upbringing, which, which instilled in them that education was part and parcel of how you better yourself, but also how through that learning you give back to community. So she, my mother always taught us that the more educated you became, the more incumbent it was upon you to be humble and show humility by giving back. And yeah. it just became a natural part of our lives that that's what we had to do. And that's and we watched her do that all the time. <laughs> OK, so um, you, you have this background and then, you know, you're learning, you're pushing. Then you land in, in London for your, <laughs> for, for your degree. You decide that you want to be a lawyer. 
Yeah. What, what, what happened there? So uh, I think this is the story that probably amused you the most <laughs> when we were talking. <laughs> I suppose that in growing up, clearly influenced by many of the civil rights movements, I, I had this you know, acute sense of right and wrong, but also growing up in a country which... Um, as you and I know full well, there was, you know, it's only a form of apartheid. And so I had this, this upbringing that um, very much was in my face of what was, what was fair and what was not fair, what was appropriate and yeah. appropriate, and how the colour of your skin alone had led to prejudice and discrimination. But I can't say um, that you know, discrimination and prejudice impacted my life until I came to the UK. And uh, we came to the UK because there was um, a civil war in Zimbabwe and there there were, you know, concerns about the safety of the family. So my father um, made a choice to bring us to the UK. And I got to say that, you know, I really didn't feel discrimination until I was here in the UK where um, just on, you know, in a playground playing with the kids, I was spat at and and various um, expletives used yeah. racially using me. And I, I must admit that had a profound impact on me. But even growing up, I think that the element of um, being a girl amongst three older boys, mm-hmm. I, I, I distinctly saw how they were treated and what they were able to do and um you know my parents view very much very traditional view of you're a girl so you should bear a nice dress and behave yourself and learn learn all the crafts that you need to learn and learn how to cook and behave and uh, all, all the things that uh, <laughs> I rebelled distinctly against uh growing up and I distinctly wanted to be a boy <laughs> growing up <laughs> I saw all the advantages and the fun yeah. that the boys were having and all the things that I have to stay and be indoors on and have pretty hair and pretty dresses which in the end I think my mother gave up on because I had unruly hair and I would definitely (laughs) enjoy rolling around in the mud so she had to change me out of the pretty dress that she put me into and I think that instilled in my psyche was that sense of fairness which is if they could do that why can't I Mm. and I guess as a consequence I deliberately broke the rules I deliberately showed that I could do the same things that they could so I could be treated the same way I think that shaped my choices that shaped my choices um, in going into the law because in the end I wanted to advocate for people who had no voice who for whom you know fairness and um, being treated right is a natural human right and I wanted to be that person who could advocate on their behalf so that that really shaped my choice um, uh, to become a lawyer yeah, your poor mother, as we said before, <laughs> she has three boys and then suddenly she has a girl. She's like, oh my God, finally I can pick dresses and you want to run the mud. I think she despaired. I think she got so fed up with my hair at one point that she went and got me a boy's haircut. I was delighted. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so you're, you're now at the age where you're deciding what you want to do. And, you know, the predominant school of thought is if you are a woman of colour, if you are a woman, um, really the only options available to you is what you described to me as the ghetto chambers. You were either going to do criminal law or you were going to do immigration law. 
Um, and you certainly weren't going to do it, you know, where your white counterparts were doing it. Mm. Yes. And one of the things that when I, I, so I was called to Barn and, and in the UK, um, it's quite a unique system. So you have two sides of the profession. You have solicitors um, yeah. in firms and strive for partnership in their employed positions. You have barristers who enter apprenticeships and they call pupillage and they go into chambers and they largely self-funded. If they're lucky, they get sponsorship uh, or a chamber grant. And, and therefore you have to build your own practice and you are self-employed. And, um, and at the time when I was going into that profession, it was definitely, and still remains to a certain extent, that side of the profession quite, a, quite considered quite an elitist part of the profession. Yeah. And, and therefore, I knew that I was going to face barriers, but it didn't stop me. And Why? Because I think I was driven by my motivation and my motivation was to do good and to advocate and to give a voice to the voiceless. In the end, I think those things that shaped me, that the inequality that I saw around me was stronger than anything that anyone else could do to me. And, um, and in the end, I suppose I had that young, naive view of the world um, that I could overcome it irrespective. And I think you, when you're younger, you absolutely have so much more energy and drive um, and less fear. You're driven by less fear. I think you you generate more fear the older you get. And if you think about that, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 absolutely. I was just, just going to say, but you had something bigger than you and something bigger than your fear that you were trying to achieve. Mm. And that's what really propelled you forward. So you've got all this optimism, you know, all this um, energy, then what happens? So then I, I, I made about, you know, in excess of 250 applications to, to, to join Chambers and, and become a, a pupil. And I was granted a place um, in London in, in, with some Chambers. But in the run-up to that, I experienced all sorts of uh, prejudice you know my name was foreign my yeah. my credentials didn't really meet the average credentials which were usually Oxford Cambridge graduates with connections to the law you know quite often my peers were people whose parents were judges or solicitors and and had all of the benefits that came with that yeah. and that really it was very telling because I am mentor uh, and have mentored in the past, you know, younger students and graduates coming through. And, it, and in listening to their stories, I hear my own story being retold back to me. And, um, and it is in that inequality, you know, I didn't really understand the different spoons and knives and the settings that I would have to uh, use for the bar dinners. I mean, it's, again, a quirk of the English legal system, yeah. as a barrister, that you have to have 36 dinners at the time and sit with other barristers, which was an absolute requirement in order to be able to be called to the bar to qualify as a barrister, which is such a weird quirk. 
The rationale for that is historic, which is that's apprenticeship. That's how at the table where you heard advocates talking about their appearances in court, you would listen in, you'd understand the arguments, you would that would bear on the learning. And that was the purpose of it. It was also a way in which you can build community and connection. But yes, it was... <laughs> <laughs> sometimes an alienating experience and I was told as part of my application process sometimes in interviews well we just don't think where the chambers for you there are some other chambers that perhaps you ought to go to and and it became known as ghetto chambers because they were largely chambers populated by Asian and, and black advocates and barristers and and it seems it was such a derogatory way in which to refer to us um, and to make assumptions and biases that actually that's what would interest you. And those those yeah. were chambers, as you rightly pointed out, practiced you know criminal law or immigration law and had specific practices, which then became known as well. That that's probably the direction you want to go for. Uh, yeah. it, it was not what you know interested me, and it's not what I wanted to qualify into. Yeah, but what made, what gave you the strength of mind? I mean, coming from where you had come from, going into the ghetto chambers would have given you a measure of success. It, by no stretch of the imagination would that have been a failure, but you knew you wanted more. What allowed you to say, I'm saying no to that and I'm going, I'm going to choose the harder, the harder part? Probably naivety. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think, I think in the end, in a combination of things, which is the unwillingness to compromise on what my overall goals were, but also I had made some calculated decisions and, and probably most of my career choices weren't that calculated in the grand scheme of things. And I can't even claim to it to be my decision, but I am my oldest brother, actually, when we were talking about degree choices that I was um, looking to select he he actually strongly advocated that I select a four-year degree course which involved um, 14 months with um, external law firms during the degree and so it was called a sandwich course in those days I'm not sure what they call it today but in that time I was able to gain a huge amount of practical experience whilst I was doing my degree that gave me the ability to talk um, you know, very authoritatively about the choices that I was making, the experience that I had gained as an undergraduate. And it gave me an advantage to say, I have 14 months of legal experience that actually, you know, should edge me forward. So I made a choice to do an extra year, again, compared to my peers who did straight three-year law degrees. And I think that gave me the advantage of making connections and, and, networking with members of the bar and law firms who when they experienced me were generous enough to give me references and stand by me and that was how I got my first pupillage because the barristers that I had supported as a clerk outside outdoor clerk as we were then um, during my time said actually let's give Neelima a chance because we've already met her we've seen her in action she has a good grasp of what's required to put a, a case together for court so that's a good you know striving first step and then I managed to you know I had the re requisite qualifications too I had a two one degree and I had passed the bar course too so I, I did get that opportunity but there was a certain amount of investment up front in ensuring that I got requisite experience. Absolutely. And it's the peak, some of the people that you knew that were able to, you know, make better or amplify your what was on paper. 
Mm. And these these women, you know, in the end, the the people who supported me were women advocates. And, um, and And I absolutely believe that gender had a choice in that. You know, they had made a choice on that basis. But also, I think their experience of me helped. Um, Not to say that, um, and not to in any way diminish the support that I had from the firms that I worked with. I worked with a couple of partners who were delighted to give me references to and and stand by me from that perspective. So I think it's important in the choices that we make when we are progressing to to do the best that we possibly can in that time period and, and make connections. And I think when you're younger and you don't have any other um, responsibilities like family, that is what you can throw yourself into. You can do that you know, wholeheartedly. Yeah, that's interesting. Speaking of the women in your life that helped you as you were coming up, because one of the things I find is sometimes as women, we are harder on other women, especially when they become successful. Why don't they help others? But sometimes it's subtle. So mm-hmm. I, I really cannot stop thinking about Branston Pickle uh, <laughs> sandwiches. Uh, tell us about, you know, you, you're, you're now working and, and, and tell us about your experience of Branston Pickle and cheese oh, So <laughs> you have got such a good memory. You really do. I, so... When you go to the bar, and as I indicated, you know, it, you don't really earn, a, earn much money because you're not being paid to train, which is different when you're a solicitor. And so I had taken out large loans to pay for my bar school course and to be able to live on. And the chambers in which I worked with, my pupil mistress was this gorgeous lady um, who I'm, I'm forever grateful to. But she, so I, I, she was my people mistress and my responsibility was to support her research, follow her into court, understand her, uh, you know, what she did. And, and quite often, whenever we used to have court trials, we'd go to court and she'd expect me to have, bring my lunch with me, which is often, was just often a Brunston pickle and cheese sandwich. <laughs> and I couldn't afford anything more elaborate. And so I'd make that and I'd pack that and I'd often take it. And, and I, I got to the point where I was running out of money and the only thing I had was a a tin of tuna in my cupboard and so I went to court with her and we were sitting at lunch and she looked at me she goes oh you're not having any lunch today Neela and I said oh no no I'm fine I'll be okay and I think a couple of days in a row she kind of noticed the damn gurgle of my stomach rumbling you know and the second time she kind of said to me would you uh would you like a cup of tea and a, and a cake I'm gonna have a slice of cake would you like one and and I think in that kindness and generosity, she didn't want to shame or humiliate me by asking me those sorts of questions. But at the same time, she wanted to show kindness and generosity. Yeah. And I think it, I think that I was always grateful for that, um, you know, the human approach. And I think when people are human um, in response to your condition without shaming you, you know, I think that makes a big difference um, yeah. to how you feel because you don't lose your integrity along the way. Yeah, but it was hard, wasn't it? You made this choice. You made the choice to go the hard path and it was not easy. I mean, there was times where, like you say, you couldn't necessarily have an elaborate life and eat what you wanted to eat, but you are surrounded by people who are. And I I never resented that. I mean, I think that, I again, I I think 
I was I count myself as very lucky the universe taught me a huge number of lessons and I um I remember going to see my my lovely bank manager at HSBC David Papa who I still remember today and said to him David I've got no money <laughs> my fees don't come in I mean the, again the unusual thing about the bar is that you don't get paid straight away for work that you've done it can take sometimes six months or longer to be paid for some work. And we we used to do very sort of low value work as well. So you get the odd 40 pounds and you'd yeah. celebrate, you know, <laughs> 40 pounds. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had run out and I said I was getting work that on average I was able to go into court three days a week. But I, sometimes I couldn't even travel to the court because I had no money to buy the train ticket to go to court. And I think that the... the, the the unusual thing is that, and the strange thing for most people is that um, when they see barristers and they see us turn up, you know, in, in open court proceedings with a wig and gown, we project a certain image and people will think, well, you know, you're you're okay, you know, and you must be doing quite well because you're hey, very wealthy. Yes, and, and actually contrary to that, quite a significant number of the profession, even today, you know, suffer the same thing and, and are having to find their way um, through and navigate through very different circumstances to build a, a reputation, to build, um, you know, a, a, a enough to a, of a caseload to be able to make a living out of it. So, again, I think that I was lucky. I had a, had a considered thoughtful, um, you know, bank manager who understood the life of barristers um, but in the end, I made a stark choice. I, I decided that I couldn't continue because my loans were kicking in and I wasn't mm-hmm. earning enough to pay those and rent and feed myself. So I decided to take a paid job to work for the government legal service. And at that time, I ended up working for Her Majesty's Customs and Excise, prosecuting drug importers and bootleggers. And, and how did that feel, making that leap? Or did it feel like a failure? Did it feel like just a transition? How did that feel? That moment when you said, okay, this is amazing and it works, but it's not working for me. Yeah, I felt, it felt utterly like failure. Um, mm-hmm. It felt like I had everything I had striven for up until that point. And I, and I had done it to the point that I think I'd actually given up a personal life and a social life too, yeah. you know, I, I was one of the geeks at university who you would inevitably always find in the library. And my, one of my oldest friends still reminds me that she knew in the first year of uh, the law degree that we were doing together where to find me. She, oh, I know where to find Nila. She's in Chaucer Library. And inevitably, <laughs> that's where I'd be, you know. <laughs> I know everyone else would be out partying, doing Freshers' Week stuff. And I was the geek in the library going, I've got to do this. But in part, you know, some of that was also driven by, you know, my parents. You know, I, I think that some people were quite a lot of um, some the Asian families will recognize the emotional guilt that your parents put on you too. Which is, look how much we've sacrificed on your behalf. You you better do good in life, you know, and make that be be a worthy individual because we have sacrificed quite a lot. And they and to be fair, my parents absolutely did they worked incredibly hard and they did sacrifice so much for our education and for our betterment Mm -hmm. so I think those things did prey absolutely on my mind to just 
to push me to do better and to honor everything that they had sacrificed on my behalf. So, so yeah, I think those things did help make my choice. But at the time, that transition absolutely felt like failure. Mm. But when I landed in that role, I made some amazing friends who I still know today and whom I see on a regular basis. One is actually on my team as well today. Right. And to be reunited with a friend who I worked with, you know, more than 20 years ago, who I've known more than 30 years, is, is quite astounding. But again, I think it goes back to that thing I said before, which is I'm in this role now, I'm going to make the best of it possible. And I am going to learn whilst I'm here and try and find an opportunity once I'm able to pay my loans off, find an opportunity to actually progress the career that I originally um, made a choice for, which was in, 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 in the civil law, in the civil commercial arena. Amazing. And so we fast forward a little bit. Um, you're now, you know, you're, you're not a prosecutor anymore. You're back in the private sector and you are working all the hours that God sends like everybody else. Mm. Then you make a few transitions. You know, you, you are somebody who has done everything. <laughs> uh, you know, you've worked, you know, you've, you've done the legal profession side of things or, on, in, in various different ways. Then you went off and you became a, a CEO of a business and then you went off and you became a CEO of a business and now you're back and you're a general counsel. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. a lot that's a lot and, and I mean um let's let's start with uh, um the first transition you know you're working in private practice and you said you were working all the hours that got sense what made you make the leap into something else were you were you not a yeah what made you I mean interestingly enough I worked for a fantastic um firm called Simmons and Simmons and I learned so much in that time I was hugely supported provided huge opportunities to keep growing and um, some incredible work working with fantastic clients. And I, I ended up having quite an unusual caseload and probably um, worked with, uh, uh, it from Simmons' perspective, the first extradition case they ever worked with. I worked with an incredibly talented team, uh, members of the bar who were General Pinochet's uh, defense team. Uh And I just traveled the world. I ended up going to the US. I ended up going to um, Qatar. I I traveled and I learned a huge amount. And so I got to a point in my profession at Simmons where they they invited me to submit a business plan for a partnership, which my sponsor um, was kind enough to back me on. And then I... I made the decision to leave and um, go around the world with my husband for a year. And we were in our mid-30s and we were flashpackers and we went around the world for a year. And I think at that point in time, I decided that I needed to be really clear about the choices I was making and what I wanted to do. And I think I wanted to actually go around the world to see the world at a time where I didn't have children I didn't have those things holding me down and it just seemed like a unique opportunity um so yeah so we both quit our city jobs and went around the world for a year so, so some people that are listening to me are going what <laughs> yeah you nutcase absolutely you know everybody works or everybody in the legal profession anyways tries to work up to the point of being partner and you are invited to be you know start that process and you quit yes <laughs> I mean emotionally 
Um, you know, there must have been a level of uh, what if this doesn't work out? What if I never get another job? What if, yeah. what if, you know, the, the, the amount of what ifs. And also there's the people going, are you nuts? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had an awful lot of that. Are you absolutely nuts? I mean, there was a lot of delight from my competitors in, in them yeah. who also vying for partnership. Okay, great result, you know, a nice decision. One you know, down. Yes, exactly. One down. Who else can we who else can we nobble? Um, I think absolutely you're right. And you know, to be fair, it was not an easy decision to make. I in my heart, um, I was afraid. Because I think, you know, law firms create an, an immense environment of safety. You know, you're safe financially, you're safe in the direction of travel, you know what you have to do to be able to progress. And I think that in the year of travel, it took me quite a long time to adjust from that. Because I sat back and I thought, oh, my God, who else is ever going to give me that opportunity again? How am I going to get myself back to that position and uh, and I and oh my God, had I sacrificed so much and done so much to get to that position, what the hell was I thinking? Mm. But I thought that the pull and the drive to learn about the world, to see it, was greater, and to have that opportunity with my husband to go around the world was greater. And I, I didn't think that I could pass up that opportunity at that point in time and it also was an, a fantastic opportunity to to reflect about life and what I want to do in the direction I wanted to go in and also at that point in time actually discussing with my husband is it is it not time we start a family um, yeah. because doing 90 hours a week in a law firm is not necessarily going to lend itself to to creating an environment to raise a family so when we came back um, I made a choice to go in-house and become general counsel. And I, um, I, worked, uh, I worked with a fantastic company that went through a huge amount of transition. We, it was a 250 FTSE. Uh, it delisted, relisted, grew and expanded. And, and I remember we, after the, the delisting, <laughs> I I was I got pregnant with my first daughter. And <laughs> one of the one of the um uh EAs, the executive assistant, said to me, I don't know where you had time to even get pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. But you know, we have to make time for our personal lives. And yeah. um, and again, that job taught me a huge amount. I recall um you know, in that time period, I had two children, I had two girls who are who are now school age and, and gorgeous and lovely children. And but in that time, I again, I learned an awful lot about myself, which which I remember telling you, which was that I had become addicted to this um, job of, you know, closing deals, expanding, doing the right thing, making the right decision, growing a team and hitting, you know, hitting milestones Mm-hmm. Um, getting paid bonuses and being recognised for doing those things, and and I and in that reward, I was getting more and more progression and more and more um, recognition, as well as taking a, making a distinct choice to network, to speak to others, to help and mentor and coach others, to do more charitable work, and I felt that this was the life that I was hoping to to build, but mm-hmm. the addiction to work away at the time that I was spending uh, or not spending with my children mm-hmm. and it, you know I remember coming home and my youngest my youngest daughter was a toddler just who, who just come back from nursery and 
um, we were in the middle of a deal and I was on my BlackBerry, the dreadful BlackBerry. <laughs> and um, I remember trying to answer an email and she was jumping up, trying to knock it out of my hand. Mm. And I will never forget that visual picture is in, ingrained in my memory because my toddler was saying, why is that device in your hand more important? When I'm here. You know, I want your attention. I want your love. Mm -hmm. I want to play with you. And you're spending your time with this device. And I, I felt that immense guilt of, oh, my God, yes, I am prioritizing this job more than I'm prioritizing this lovely, gorgeous child in my life that I have been had the honor to have and and I I needed to spend more time with her and make that quality time make it really count because I think mm -hmm. mothers we inevitably have as everyone knows this guilt of I'm at work I'm not spending time with my children and and you know as we grow we have to make these difficult choices and, and in my view when you are a mother you have to decide um, how to spend quality time and what that what you're going to do in that quality time and create laughter and generate memories that that your children will always love because they will always remember those happy moments with you so that quality time is really important yeah I mean I, I have another image from our last conversation where you know you felt you mentioned to me that you felt aside from creating moments for your children it's it's kind of this being okay with yourself where you said you felt like an outsider um in your family can you share with us um, yeah I, it, it, I think I, I, that realization of so, you know spending so much time at work that I at one point I sort of felt like I was pressing my nose against a window and watching my family play together and not being on the inside of that and being on the outside of that. And, and it, it, that sort of disassociation, it felt really lonely. It felt really lonely and it was so difficult. And I had done that myself. No one had imposed that on me. I had made those choices. And I think that that's the addiction, you know, that dopamine hit you get from work that becomes almost everything that you do in in you sacrifice and you pour everything into it and what happens I think and what I, I think what happened to me and I think what happens to a lot of people is that your self-esteem is acutely bound in that work it gives you a job title it gives you recognition it gives you um, what we learn and and are treated to believe is is um you know, self-esteem and, and we and we get a lot of joy from it because we think, oh, I'm being recognized for all the things that I've been doing I've been doing. And or the opposite, right? When you're yes. not being recognized or not being given what you're given, you still feel that this is my value, this is my self-esteem, and it's tied to this job. And right. it's just not true. Yes, and it's not true because when you experience that disappointment at work, you feel it viscerally, it's emotional. And in fact, it can, you know, it can lead to depression, it can lead to anxiety, it can lead to, you know, stress-related conditions, it can lead to problems at home with, with family or with, with partners. It can lead to 
isolation from your friends. You're making these choices and actually you're, you're unconsciously sometimes making these choices. And it takes certain events to force you to stop doing that because you are out of kilter, out of balance. And understanding balance is really key. Understanding who you are holistically, the fact that your job or your job title doesn't define you is really important. And that's why I think, you know, some of the things that I spend my time with my team doing is is actually emphasizing that, that as a whole human being, uh, it is really important to be in balance. It is really important to understand the things that you're really passionate about, that you enjoy, whether that is, you know, swimming, cycling, whether that is playing music, singing, seeing your friends, spending time with that, generating memories and laughter. We are hardwired for human connection. So doing it together with our friends, it brings joy. And it's so good for our health, our mental health, our families. And it's what life should be. Life should not be all about work. I made it all about work because I felt that's where I got value. That's where I was recognized as someone delivering value. But in reality, that's not the, that's not the case. You know, I think we have to start with ourselves. We have to start with our core values. We have to start with valuing ourselves, being kind to ourselves, really understanding the things that we love we're passionate about that bring us joy the creativity um within us and lean into those things because that joy is what life is about and because of the way our education system works particularly in the western world the way we're brought up and the nature of the way in which we've moved away from families you know the things traditionally that made us connect with family, connect with community, have been fragmented. Yeah, so, so yeah. shopping on a Sunday, right? Instead yes, of yes. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And, and therefore we lose sight of who we are as a whole human being. And as a whole human being, we are many things. We are brothers, sisters. We are, you know, mothers, you know, fathers. We are, we are many things. We're friends. But we're also passionate, you know, cyclists or musicians or... Yes. You know, we, we, we might love knitting, we might love whatever it is, but that makes us unique. And that's what makes us interesting. That's what makes us, you know, complex human beings and dynamic. But that passion is what also makes us, um, gives us joy. Yes. And that's really important. I mean, you clearly made the shift from someone who was a, uh, a, a work workaholic mm. uh, to somebody who now speaks about expressions of joy and passion and whatever. Um, and there's something that you shared with me in our last conversation. What was the catalyst? Because your daughter sort of trying to grab the blackberry out of your hand wasn't enough no. to sort of give you perspective. Uh, so what was? So I, I think that um, at the time, so it was around 2016, I was uh, really lucky to have, you know, completed some courses at Henley and Harvard. And I'd, I'd also had the benefit of some executive coaching. And the coach that I had at the time was working with me on purpose and core values. 
Um, and then and 2016 was a hugely tough year for multiple reasons. And I lost both my parents within three months of each other. Mm. And, and it was the loss of my mother that I think was the catalyst. I think the universe had decided that it didn't matter what messages it had sent to me to break out of this that actually I wasn't leading the life I was meant to lead, but also I needed something really dramatic to force a change. And sometimes this happens to people in their immediate family, whether that's to themselves because of illness, whether that's cancer or a serious injury or someone they love or someone they have to care for, or, you know, and sometimes their own, their own children. And, it shouldn't have to be that. We need to recognize that it shouldn't, it, we shouldn't have to have these incredible things happen in our lives to force change. But I think that that change that it forced in me to adjust and readjust and actually understand that I had a greater purpose than the one that I had designed for myself. Yeah. And even though I might have been mentoring and coaching and giving to charity and and, and giving up time, it, it actually, it, it there was more to it. And my coach, who I had done some work with and had done some equine work with, had similarly reflected that back to me and had said, I don't think you have quite understood your purpose in life yet. And I think it's bigger than you. And it's bigger than you've currently crafted it. And I think that acting small, that being small, that doing things small, was really not for me and mm-hmm. I had a greater purpose and the greater purpose came to me in that in that time and that really was to lean into the creation of, of courageous leaders which is an event that I created in honor of my mother to recognize the things that she had done incredibly courageously but also the, the sincere belief that I, I think leaders who can be a force for good and they can have exponential benefit on everyone around them yeah. um, and therefore, I, in being courageous, they can be a force for good. And creating that event to help leaders to be a force for good um, was also part and parcel of investing in the one thing that had been a theme throughout my life, which was to help disadvantaged girls in pursuing an education and continuing their education. So in partnership with Plan International, every single pound that we raise at Courageous Leaders goes to a, an education project for girls in, um, in Zimbabwe. And in fact, the, the lovely thing is that um, recently Difford had um, done an impact assessment of that program and had given it an, uh, an A plus, you know, their equivalent of saying that the money that had been invested had actually had the impact it was meant to have. And there's nothing more satisfying, more joyous to know that by by leaders improving themselves, being a force for good, they themselves in this beautiful virtuous circle are also contributing to help future leaders um, in in the education program that we have. And that to me is, is, is that virtuous circle. And for me, that's the joy, that's in everything that I do, I want to look for the good and the joy in it. And I want to be able to continue that life and continue doing that. So in a calculated way, being, being a leader, having a voice, doing the right thing, showing that it can be done, I can continue to pursue my philanthropic goals and further those goals for, for these incredible girls that are on this programme. 
And the work that you're doing is, is phenomenal. I, um, I hope you are very proud of that because a lot of times we're not very kind to ourselves, like you said in our last conversation. Um, I do have one really quick question before I allow you to give us some advice. And that question is, you mentioned a concept that I really love that stuck with me and this concept of self-disruption. Mm. So, you know, you've gone from career to career to career. You've now managed to, you know, put your family in that you created an ecosystem that works for you and and you talked about self-disruption what does that mean <laughs> it means that we I guess it ultimately it, it it means that we shouldn't be on this planet this incredible planet that we have and lead a mediocre life I think that we must upend when we are as privileged as we are and 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 a good proportion of us are and I am and I recognize that um a good we, we need to disrupt ourselves to think differently and to snap out of complacency and to snap out of privilege and to recognize that in our privilege we have so much more to give and so I try and disrupt my thinking by um listening hearing uh, different podcasts by following people I really admire to to inspire me to think differently and to experiment with creating an ecosystem, for example, at work that um, talks about the hu- whole human, you know, and understands the whole human being. So I think that my the nature of my career choices are by their nature disruptive. Um, and I think it's it's important that we also recognize that if we are in a job where we are hustling for our worthiness, um, we're in the wrong job. You know, we, 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 we shouldn't be hustling for our worthiness. We shouldn't have to keep proving ourselves over and over again when we're doing a good job. We should be able to recognize that we're delivering value and receive the right kind of reward, praise, recognition for the work that we're doing. And I found myself hustling for my worthiness quite a lot. And I guess in that, I realized that I wasn't being kind to myself. I I was achieving a huge amount, but I would not allow myself to lean into that, to appreciate that, um, and to recognize that that was good. You know, I was enough. I am enough. And I think that is such a hard thing to do. Um, but I think it's a mantra we have to learn, and particularly I think women have to learn. Let's ensure that we understand when we are enough and that we're good enough. Um, and in that, we show kindness to ourselves. And I think when we do that, we can open up and unlock so much more value in ourselves. I love that. I actually love that. We're all out of time. Is there anything else that you would like to share and um, just before we leave, we literally have one minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure what would be helpful. I think it's, it's, there's so many things that we can say, but I, I would say to your listeners and to those um, who are looking to, to grow and become leaders in the future, I would say to you, uh, understand yourself, be kind to yourself first and foremost, open your mind, seek out diverse people, um, who can shape and help you decide on what your life's, life's purpose is and never compromise on your value. Always listen to your heart and your head. I think we are trained to ignore our heart and actually when it comes to happiness, 
actually our heart is the best indicator. The feeling that we get is the best indicator that we're doing what is right for ourselves and our families. And more than anything else, I think that I would say, do what your, makes your heart sing. Um, understand mm -hmm. that there will always be something that leads to failure. But actually, if you reframe that, it's an opportunity to learn and then it's an opportunity to grow. But, but bring your human self, show humanity, show kindness, empathy, compassion, joy. That's actually what leads to great human connection. And it is always other human beings that will help you get to where you need to get to. And it, where the joy is, is in that human connection. So do what makes your heart sing. I love that. Right. Thank you so, so much for sharing with us. That was beautiful. You are beautiful. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming along. And yes, hopefully we'll see you again soon sometime. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Nilima. Take care.